Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. Saul Alinsky died almost 50 years ago, but his writings influenced many of those in political control of our nation today. Obama taught students the Alinsky principles when he was a professor at the University of Chicago Law School and even wrote about Alinsky in his books. Hillary Clinton wrote her college thesis on Alinsky writings. Alinsky even began his most popular book with a series of quotes, including one attributed to himself. Quote, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which. The first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. That was that was from Saul Alinsky. In keeping with his Christian mockery theme, Alinsky gave an interview to Playboy magazine shortly uh, before his death. And Alinsky said, let's say that if there is an afterlife and I have anything to say about it, I will unreservably choose to go to hell. Playboy asked why. Alinsky said, hell would be heaven for me. All my life I've been with the have-nots. Over here, if you're a have-not, you're short of dough. If you're a have-not in hell, you're short of virtue. Once I get into hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. And Playboy asked, why them? And he said, they're my kind of people. It's really sad when you really get to think about it. In 1971, Saul Alinsky wrote an entertaining classic on grassroots organizing titled Rules for Radicals. The Alinsky organizing um, his, his process of highlighting what is wrong and convincing people they can actually do something about it. The two are linked. If people feel they don't have the power to change a bad situation, they stop thinking about it. And isn't that really the, the stem when it comes to uh, our voting? So many people don't vote because they don't really think that they are going to do anything to change anything. According to Alinsky, the organizer, especially a paid organizer from outside, must first overcome uh, the suspicions and establish credibility. Next, the organizer must begin the task of agitating, rubbing resentments, fanning hostilities, and searching out controversy. This is necessary to get people to participate. An organizer has to attack apathy and uh, disturb the prevailing patterns of compliant community life where people have simply come to accept a bad situation. Alinsky would say, quote, the first step in community organization is community disorganization. So in effect, he was one of the first Antifa, right? (laughs) He's, he's, uh, you know, one that is trying to agitate. He's one that's trying to go for disorganization. Um, through, through a process combining hope and resentment, the organizer tries to create a mass army. Well, see, here's Mantifa again. That brings in as many recruits as possible 
from local organizations, churches, service groups, labor unions, corner gangs, individuals, that type of thing. So, so really, when you get right down to it, you know, when, when we see all this anarchy and, and, and the teaching of this kind of thing, who was Saul Alinsky and why does it matter today? Well, it matters because so many current political leaders have admired him and they follow his teachings. Saul Alinsky uh, is really the father of community organizing. Uh, veteran organizer Mike Miller tried to sum up what Alinsky thought about by saying, quote, the key to community organizing is that it's not about winning on any one issue. It's about creating broad coalitions and training community members to conduct hardball campaigns to let them win on lots of issues. Professional organizers focus on building community and power, Miller writes. Issues are simply tools for the building process. So I've talked a lot about this kind of thing, about how, you know, the the, the issues that we see in, in today today's society, they aren't necessarily what they seem. For example, the, the, here in the Northwest, we went through a time uh, that a lot of people, if I name the name Spotted Owl, <laughs> there's a lot of people, they're going to have a lot of different feelings about that, <laughs> particularly if you live here in the Northwest, where um, at one time, logging was a major industry. Um, it, it, it was, the, the, the Spotted Owl thing was really a win-win for both the the killing of this logging industry, which a lot of of greenies really wanted to do, they wanted to see the logging in industry go down because they didn't like the fact that trees were being cut down. You know, the whole thing of hey, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna reuse this paper on the backside because I'm gonna save a tree today or whatever. You know, um, and the environmental movement uh, was it was a win-win for both of them. Both of them. Uh, were on the same side. It had really nothing to do with the owl. It had everything to do with the agenda of what was being pushed. And I've said that that uh, leftism uh, is a coalition of a lot of small little victim groups. And and what Alinsky is saying is you can combine these these victim groups, and they will be motivated then to to, to do what you want them to do because they're all getting wins with these different situations. Now, Alinsky didn't just theorize, theorize about organizing. He himself was an organizer, a criminologist, actually, by training. Alinsky lived in Chicago and began his work in the Back of the Yards neighborhood in the 1930s. He created the Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council, actually, a group bringing together unions, religious leaders, and I use religious leaders in quotes, and other, you know, stakeholders in the area. Linsky then scaled up his model. He actually formed the Industrial Areas Foundation, the IAF, a still existent group that helps local groups like the Back of the Yards Council organize and, uh, and conducts trainings for organizees to be. The IAF helped spread Linsky's tactics far beyond Chicago, the Community Service Organization, uh, and, which is an IAF offshoot organizes uh, and had, and organized the Mexican Americans in in the Los Angeles area, and that launched the careers, of course, of Cesar Chavez and uh, and others. Now, 
Vox.com said that Alinsky never identified as a socialist or communist, but he was a self-professed radical and a man of the left. The difference between leftism and liberalism is often elided in, in American political discussion, but it does matter. The fact that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both seriously engaged with his ideas and that Clinton knew him personally makes it possible to connect them with an American political tradition well to the left of the mainstream, Democratic Party liberalism. Now, Hillary Clinton wrote her senior thesis, as I said earlier, about Alinsky, interviewing him in, in the process, actually. He offered her an organizing job, believe it or not, which she declined in favor of, of going to Yale Law School. But they stayed in touch afterwards, as the recently released letters confirmed. Now, David Brock memorably uh, dubbed her uh, Alinsky's daughter. The, the late uh, conservative writer uh, Barbara Olson began each chapter of her 1999 book on Clinton, uh, entitled Hell to Pay, with a quote from Alinsky and argued that this uh, strategic, his strategic theories directly influenced her behavior during her husband's presidency. Clinton asked Wellesby to seal her thesis for the duration of her husband's presidency, in which they actually did do that, and the access to it wasn't even restored until 2001. Now, President Obama, unlike Clinton, had no real personal ties to Alinsky. I mean, Alinsky, after all, died when Obama was like 10 years old. But Obama was certainly influenced by Alinsky's followers and overall model of organizing. Obama famously worked as a community organizer in Chicago between 1985 and 88. And the group he worked for, Developing Community Projects, or DCP, part of the uh, Comelette Community Religious Conference, was not a part of the IAF, but, like most organizing groups in Chicago, was deeply influenced by Alinsky. Jerry Kelman, who hired Obama, was, was trained by Alinsky's organizing uh, school, uh, Obama himself attended the IAF training and, and contributed a chapter of the book after Alinsky, um, Community Organizing in, in, in Illinois. He was quoted as saying, quote, the key to creating successful organizations was making sure people's self-interest was met, unquote. So what did Alinsky and other leftist leaders find so transformational? Well, Alinsky provides a collection of rules to guide the process, but he emphasized these rules must be translated into real-life tactics that are fluid and responsive to the situation at hand. Alinsky's opening sentence follow, uh, says this, quote, follow, or what follows is for those who want to change the world from what it is, to what they believe it should be. And isn't that a leftist ideology? <laughs> I mean, they always think that the world isn't what it should be, and they know best, and so they're going to transform it into that. Saul Alinsky's uh, 12 Rules for Radicals is his most common um, contributed uh, contribution to to um, you know the 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 world of literature, <laughs> I guess is the best way to put that. Um, it really is a playbook for the the modern left. 
uh, and, and I want to go through uh, his, his rules here. Rule number one, and I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of a lot of things that are happening today because of these rules. Number one, power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. See, power is derived from two main sources, he maintains. Money and people. Have-nots must build power from flesh and blood, and these are two things of which there is a plentiful supply. <laughs> Government and corporations always have a difficult time appealing to people and usually do so almost exclusively with economic arguments. So I'll give you an example here. These are, are groups of people, there, there are groups of people that number about 10 to 12 people usually, and these groups have set up hundreds and thousands of fake social media accounts and emails. When a business stands up for itself or does something the left doesn't like, these groups kick into action. And they flood businesses with emails and, and social media posts that make it look like the whole world is upset at them. Many corporations and even political leaders uh, are, are susceptible to this. They, they already have this metric that says that every negative um, customer equals really 10 more that are mad, but just not saying anything. And so this tactic just plays right into this kind of warfare. Another example is that the campaigns with, um, that, that have, they, they actually have social media people whose whole job is to monitor social media groups. And when something negative is said about that candidate, they actually go and attack that person and try to bully them into stopping. It's a real thing. Rule number two, never go outside the expertise of your people. Uh, it, it results in confusion, fear, and retreat. Feeling secure adds to the backbone of anyone. Organizations under attack wonder why radicals don't address the real issues. That is why they avoid things with which they have no knowledge. You ever, you ever wonder why someone who is upset or offended about something doesn't ever talk about the offenses? <laughs> this is because it is not about them being offended. It's about the agenda that they are trying to push. They're looking for things to be offended about oftentimes. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. The George Floyd's death. This was held up as a shining example of racism in the U.S. When someone wants to talk about why this is an, ex an example of racism at all, they only call that person a racist. They don't really talk about why. They don't give any explanation. There was never any connection to what those police officers did and racism. The majority of the officers on the scene were minorities. It wasn't about George Floyd or police practices. It was about promoting the agenda that all America is racist. Rule number three, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. Look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety, and uncertainty. This happens all the time. Watch how many organizations under attack are blindsided by seemingly irrelevant arguments that they are then forced to address, of course. Now, I'll give you an example here. This, this shows its, its ugly head many times when it comes to medical issues or science. A an example is the COVID vaccines. When you ask a leftist about why a person that has had the virus needs to get the vaccine, 
they completely change the subject. I've had doctors do this. They, they will say something like, the health of the community is at risk. Why is it at risk? Because we have the same immunity. So why is the community at risk? They might say that science has shown that the antibodies don't last as long, even, even though when, when we have more study, you know, we definitely have more studies on, on people that have had the virus and gotten better than the vaccine itself, because obviously the virus has been around longer than the vaccine. It's not about the, the spread of the coronavirus. It's about power and control. So what businesses do is they require masks in their retail areas uh, or office buildings. And it doesn't matter if that anything short of, you know, clean fitted nine N95 mask does absolutely no good. A, a craft store knows crafts, not viruses. And so they mandate mask wearing for everyone and eventually vaccinations to employees, thus giving the left more, yes, you got it, power and control. Rule number four, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. If the rule is that every letter gets a reply, send 30,000 letters. You can kill them with this because no one can possibly obey all their own rules. This is a serious rule. The, the, the benign uh, entity, very credibility, their, their very credibility and reputation is at stake if they don't follow these rules. Because if activists catch a corporation lying or not living up to its own commitments, they can continue to chip away at the damage. I'll give you an example. Um, in the military, this is a staple of guerrilla war- warfare. You know that the superior force has to follow its own rules of engagement to, to operate effectively. This means that you know exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to respond to what you do. They do the same thing over and over because it's their rule. So the same thing applies here. If you know what a corporation or whatever is going to do, then you know exactly how to push and where to push and just how hard to push. Number five, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's ir- irrational. It's infuriating. It also works as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. Pretty crude, rude and mean, right? They want to create anger and fear. I'll give you an example. Antifa and BLM writers use this really effectively in relation to police. They, they know that they can and can't do certain things. And, and, and they do something where the police, let's say, deploy tear gas, for instance. Then they film it and make sure you get a, like a young child involved or whatever and promote how terrible this is and get the city leaders to ban tear gas now. In major cities today, they they don't have the most effective tool for crowd control. So you see, they use their most potent weapon against them. Rule number six, a good tactic is one your people enjoy. You'll keep doing it without urging and and come back to do more. They're doing their thing. 
and will even suggest better ones. Radical activists, in this sense, are no different than any other human being. We all avoid unfun activities. And, but we, we, we revel at the, and, and enjoy the ones that, that work best and, and bring results. I'll give you an example. Um, demonstrating and writing can be fun. I, I once had a conversation with an acquaintance and she said that she was going to go march and, um, and go to a demonstration in downtown Portland, Oregon uh, that evening. I knew why they were going to demonstrate and it really wasn't for a good reason. It was really totally ridiculous reason to be honest with you. And I asked her why she was going and, and she, you know, I, I wanted to know if she even supported the reason. And she replied that she did not really understand or know why they were demonstrating at all, but it was just always a lot of fun to go down and, and demonstrate. And, you know, I, I, I can see your point. What could be more fun than looting a Target store of a 56-inch LED big screen TV, right? <laughs> All right, moving to rule number seven. A tactic that, that drags on too long becomes a drag. Don't become old news, he says. Even radical activists get bored. So to keep them uh, excited and involved, organizers are constantly coming up with new tactics. I would say even recycling old ones. Uh, I mean, you know, marching, for instance, was a huge effective way of change in the 60s and 70s. It grew old in the 90s and 2000s, but guess what? It, we're right back at it again. <laughs> so anyway, um, rule, uh, rule number eight, keep the pressure on never let up. Keep trying new things to keep the opposition off balance. As the opposition masters one approach, hit them from the flank with something new. Attack, attack, attack from all sides. Never give, giving the reeling organization a chance to rest, regroup, recover, and um, re-strategize. I, I will say that, that that we see this just very clearly uh, in all the different crises that go on. Uh, here, here's just a short list uh, that I put together here. Saw a meme, and this this uh, this really. Um, was something that that resonated with me. Um, year two thousand, Y two K is going to destroy everything. Two thousand one, anthrax is going to kill us all. Two thousand two, West Nile virus is going to kill us all. Two thousand three, SARS is going to kill us all. Two thousand five, bird flu is going to kill us all. Two thousand six, E. coli is going to kill us all. Right? I mean, two thousand eight, financial collapse is going to kill us all. Um, two thousand nine, swine flu is going to kill us all. 2012, the, the Mayan calendar predicts the world's ending. Remember that one? 2013, I mean, this is a big deal. North Korea is going to cause World War III. 2014, e Ebola virus is going to kill us all. 2020, I mean, obviously we, we have the coronavirus going to kill us all. All of these things are designed to control by fear. And God is not the author of fear. Rule number nine, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. Imagination and ego can dream up many more consequences than any activist. And, and, it, and it's true. Uh, you notice that when an election of a, a Republican president comes around, there's always something that tanks a thriving economy. We saw that with George Bush. We saw that uh, obviously with the coronavirus and Trump. I mean, it's, it, that, that's a, a key 
factor in uh, someone getting reelected, a president getting reelected, how's the economy? And when we get to that time frame, suddenly something comes around that kind of tanks the, the economy. Rule number 10, if you push a negative hard enough, it will push through uh, and become a, a positive. Uh, violence from the other side can win the public to your side because the public sympathizes, sympathizes with the underdog. Um, rule number 11, the price of successful attack is a constructive alternative. Never let the enemy score points because you got caught without a solution to the problem. Um, you know, the, the democratic strategist, uh, comment that, that of course is so popular is, uh, you know, never, never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, and, and they, they, the, the government plays this game like a fiddle. I mean, the go- governments are oftentimes the problem, but instead of getting out of the way, they compound the problem by getting even more involved. They will cry for, you know, more taxes and funding so they can quote, address the issue, right? Have you ever heard that? Never mind that they are the cause of the problem in the first place. And, and when the problem gets even worse, then they can cry even louder since it's now gone, gone from, you know, a growing problem to a serious problem. <laughs> Only government can do anything about it. And really the problem is that they don't have enough funding in the first place is what their cry is. But fact the city of Seattle spends $24,000 a person per year on every homeless person in the city. Yes, $24,000 a person. And the state of Washington and Oregon spend $15,000 a year educating every child in the public school system. All right, rule number 12. Pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Um, This has done a lot in politics. During the presidency of Donald Trump, you rarely heard uh, an explanation of why leftists thought his policies were bad. They just demonized him and and those around him, really, as a racist pig. Um, there, There was never a discussion of why a certain policy was incorrect. It was always, this policy comes from a racist, right? It, the other thing that, that is interesting, if you look at, at so many things. Like, have you ever wondered why leftists like Obama can just flat out lie about something? Like, you know, if you want to keep your doctor, you can. Well, Alinsky had an additional list of 11 rules about means and ends. And I'm not going to go through them, but there's things like number three in, in war, the end justifies the means almost always. I mean, there's, it, there's a whole list of how the means justifies or the end justifies the means. So Alinsky's vision of democracy leaned heavily on that of a keen outside observer of early America. Uh, His name was Alexis de Tocqueville, the the French philosopher who uh, gravely warned that unless individual citizens were regularly involved in the action of governing themselves, self-government would pass from the scene. And we need to take this to heart and govern ourselves once again, not have the government govern us. And you may agree and you may disagree. I just would absolutely love to hear from you. 
And you can do that on Facebook. You can go to our Facebook page. You can go to Instagram. You can you can also go to UncommonSensePodcast.com. There's merchandise there that you can purchase and would love to have you support the program in that way. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.